Hello and welcome to Haunted Hometowns, your bi-weekly true crime paranormal podcast with me, Blake Lambert Hack. Tonight, I have a fun episode from Northern Ireland, but before we get into that, we have breaking news this week that we must discuss. And by breaking news, I mean we found out about it Tuesday, I believe they held the conference. If you keep up on the paranormal, as I expect most of you do, you know that the Mexican government held a press conference to discuss the remains of supposed non-human beings, meaning aliens. We are seeing aliens for the first time officially. Oh, officially. And when we say officially, it's just like, you know, the government says we have aliens and are going to show video of these aliens. So that's what makes it official. Not all these like hundreds of people who've claimed to see unidentified flying objects or what it's now known as unidentified aerial or anomalous phenomenas, UAP instead of UFOs. Regardless, plenty of people have been claiming to see aliens for centuries. But now it's official because a government came forward. Now, the U.S. government came forward a couple months ago and said, yes, aliens are real. They didn't show us an alien. So the Mexican government said, you know what? Let's step our pussies up and outdo the American government. How about that? And they sure fucking did. If you have not seen what these aliens look like, uh, they showed two aliens. They're very small. They look mummified, but they are in fact not mummified they're tiny they really do look like the alien from men in black if you think back to that glorious movie and this is not a spoiler because if you haven't seen men in black at this point shame on you but a human's face is lifted up or removed i don't remember exactly how it happens but The face is gone and it shows a little alien sitting in like a control room inside this man's head. So we learned that the man was actually a robot and this alien was controlling this robot from inside the head. That alien looks like these aliens. Very similar. The head shape is a little different, but essentially the same. (laughs) Somebody online said, that these aliens look like they're made out of paper mache. And, in fact, they do look like they've been made out of paper mache. I am going to back that. We don't know for sure. This is all alleged. We don't know for sure if these aliens are real. We have people claiming they're real, but there hasn't been third-party testing yet so 
Stay tuned for that. I will keep you all updated. Uh, These two aliens, they were discovered in Peru. Cusco, Peru, I believe is where they were discovered in 2017. So I don't know what the government's been doing for six years, but we should have gotten these aliens six years ago. They have been carbon dated to be or believed to be around 1800 years old. So they are ancient. 1800 years old. It's wild. And apparently they were preserved because they were in a mine in some cave in Peru. And algae was the culprit of preserving their bodies. Unclear. But that's what is being said at this point. Y'all, I don't know how I believe yet. I'm. My guess is just as good as yours. They're saying when they did testing... The DNA was, or 30% of the alien's DNA was unknown. Which they concluded meant that they were not part of our terrestrial evolution. Now, I don't know if I buy that either. Just because we don't know what the 30% is doesn't mean that 30% didn't come from from Earth. We still don't know all the sea creatures living in the ocean. So how are we? We're still discovering new animals daily. So I would not be surprised if we discovered this 30% of DNA down the road at some point. Or maybe the 30% is from outer space, from a different galaxy, a different planet different solar system but that tells me if it's only 30 percent are the aliens coming to earth and sleeping with humans and giving birth to these little alien buds a lot of questions and very little answers these little aliens did have three fingers and their heads are a little like elongated think the movie alien like elongated like the alien not as intense as the alien but like their head goes a little back a little farther than human beings or current day human beings i should say and to the to my point where we discover new species living on this earth regularly There's been at least five new species of animals discovered this year alone, and this year's not even over. We discovered a new snake, a snail-eating snake. That's fun. It's got a weird-looking tongue. I'm very bug-eyed, but it's a fun-looking snake. There's the stream tree frog. Cute little bud. I love frogs. Frogs are so cute. A bent-toed gecko. You know, looks like a standard gecko, but 
Oh, God, how do you pronounce this? Gymnurus? Gymnurus? I don't know. It looks kind of like a shrew or like a little hedgehog. Oh, they're also known as hairy hedgehogs or moon rats, and they're related to hedgehogs. I mean, a little rodent. It's cute. But, like, that's what I'm just getting my point across. We're just learning every day on this earth. We're discovering new shit every day on this earth. Maybe we discovered an alien. We need more testing to find out. There was some, one of them had like a ring on its finger and they were saying it was gold or gold plated. It was like mixed metals or something like that. I don't know what they're implying with having a ring on this alien's finger, but I don't know. This is big news because if this is true, this is wild. Wild. I've always said that I believe in aliens I think it's wildly ridiculous to believe that human beings, homo sapiens, are the only, or like animals, plants, people, we're the only living creatures in this galaxy. That's wild to me. And with that, I also say that doesn't mean they have to look like us. That could mean there's a tick living on Jupiter. Or there's a microorganism under the ice of one of Saturn's moons. You know, there's just like other life out there. And maybe it is tiny little aliens that got trapped. I don't know, but hopefully we'll find out soon. Last unfortunate news about this is that the person that announced the findings of this or these aliens is a man that in the past has been debunked at least a couple times so that's not the best news for us hoping that we'll see an alien sooner than later but that's not to say he's not right this time. I'm not holding thy breath, but I will let you know if anything changes or we get any updates because this is exciting for us investigators. It's ex- it's exciting. Okay, enough about that. I got that off my chest. We can move on to tonight's episode, which has nothing to do with aliens, but has everything to do with murder and ghosts. So here we go. Tonight's episode takes place in Londonbury, Derry, Northern Ireland on November 10th, 1761. I have never been to Ireland or Northern Ireland. I would love to go. I would love to go, but I am truly obsessed with an Irish accent that I I don't know what it is. I can't explain it. I'm not good at speaking in an Irish accent, but I love listening to one. 
I've worked with several Irish and they've all been so nice and I will eventually calm down about my love for the gorgeous, stunning pictures I've seen of Ireland uh, and the lovely people. I currently work with a lovely Irish lady, Elaine. Shout out to Elaine. I love you. She's so sweet. I love listening to her talk. She could talk forever and I will just sit there patiently listening because I could listen to her talk all day. All day. But I do want to visit, maybe do some golfing on the ocean. Do some road tripping to see some castles. Check out Dublin. Belfast. Cork even. It just looks so beautiful. So beautiful. Okay. We're moving on. Londonberry Bear. Londonberry slash Derry. Same town, two names. For those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, Londonberry and Derry, same town. Think the TV show Derry Girls, if you know what I'm talking about. If you know, you know. The town was originally called Derry until King James VI renamed it. Londonberry. I don't know why he, well, I kind of read a little bit why he changed it, but it's really not important here. After he named it Londonberry, I guess the town was called Londonberry for a while. Like people did call it that, but then locals went back to calling it Derry in the 1800s. At least that's my understanding. So even though it's officially Londonberry, everybody still calls it Derry. I will be referring to it as Derry. Also for Americans and others who can never keep it straight. Yes, Northern Ireland is part of the UK. Okay, with that, let's get into this case. Again, it's November 10th, 1761, when Marianne and her father, Andrew Knox, depart Derry to attend the opening of Parliament in Dublin. It's about a 145 mile trip. So today would take around three hours to drive there. Not too bad. I'm used to driving 13 hours from Chicago to Atlanta. So three hours is easy. But in the 1700s, Girl, that's too far. In a wagon, a horse-drawn carriage, too far. Nowhere to pull over to grab some food or to pee, too far. I just think of Shrek 2 when they're headed to Far, Far Away and Donkey keeps asking if they're there yet in the back of the carriage. That would be me. I would be Donkey. Are we there yet? This trip is taking so long. Are we there yet? That soundtrack is so good. Both the Shrek 1 and Shrek 2 soundtracks slap. Slap. Okay. Marianne, her father, Andrew Knox, they're on their way to Parliament, Dublin. Their first stop was in a town called Strawbane. Also, all the 
UK listeners out there, please don't attack me for my pronunciation. I'm sorry. Uh, Straubin, Straubin. Uh, they technically stopped at an inn five miles north of the town. This uh, inn had refreshments. They could rest a bit. They weren't super far into their journey yet. This is literally just south of Derry, but it was a nice little stop before another long trek. And when I say it's Mary Ann and her father, they also brought along security and a driver, of course. It's not, you know, Andrew Knox is not driving the horses and Mary Ann's in the back. Like, they had money, so Mary Ann and her father rode comfortably or as comfortably as you could in the mid-1700s. But they left the inn shortly after and continued their journey to Dublin. However, not far from the inn, the coach approached three men standing in the middle of the road, all armed with pistols. The coach halted while a servant got out of the coach to attempt to persuade or subdue the men, but he was shot three times. Now, that if that is not the epitome, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. He may not have known that they had guns, you know, when you're in a carriage and you see three men. The pistols were probably hidden. But you don't get out of the carriage when people have guns. I mean, come on now. Come on now. And I was kind of shocked that they had pistols. It is the mid-1700s, and I didn't really know when guns were created. I knew it was a long time ago, but I'm not really up to date on my gun facts since, you know, I don't love guns. But the pistol originated in the 16th century which is wild, like 200 years prior to this. So these pistols, dangerous in mid-1700s. Anyway, the security was shot, so Andrew Knox pulled his gun to protect his coach and daughter. But again, it is the 1700s, and guns back then were not very good, not reliable. He aimed and fired at the three men, but his weapon failed. Maybe he didn't clean it properly. Maybe the gun, he had never shot it before and it just was made wrong. Maybe he packed it too tight. Who's to say? But it didn't work. Maybe it was a dead bullet. One of the men lifted his pistol at Andrew Knox and fired his weapon. However, Marianne threw her body in front of her father and was struck by the bullet. More weapons were fired and the man who shot Marianne was also hit as he escaped with his men. Marianne was taken to the nearest house while a servant rushed to find a doctor. A doctor arrived pretty quickly since they weren't too far from Straubing. 
And while the doctor examined Marianne, a cavalry pursued the men who shot her and captured the man who shot Mary, since he was injured and couldn't escape as easily as his counterparts. And I can only picture, you know, he was shot and he's trying to get away and there's just like a very clean blood trail, you know? They just follow the blood. I always say that, follow the blood. Except if you listen to last episodes with Fox, that 11 year old followed the blood and found a dead body. So, you know, sometimes following the blood doesn't lead you to the best outcomes, but in this case, it did. The Calvary brought the man to Lifford Jail, which is just on the opposite side of the river from Straubing. And later, the other men would be captured as well. After hours of attempting to save Mary, she would die from her wounds. Which, unfortunately, was, you know, you could have gotten a scratch in the 1700s and died from your wounds. You could have blinked wrong and died from your wounds. It was not hard to die in the 1700s. So I give it up for Mary for lasting hours. But we do feel bad for Mary. She didn't deserve it. And the story only gets crazier from there. Because even though this man was trying to shoot Andrew Knox, his daughter is the main character in this story. So before we continue the story of Marianne and who these men were, I want to talk a little bit about something that is wildly fascinating to me and I don't know why but that is the act of bride kidnapping aka marriage by abduction or marriage by capture and some of you may have heard of this because the movie musical I can't remember if it was a film or a stage production first, but Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, essentially, that's exactly what happened in this lighthearted comedic, or I don't know if it's necessarily comedic, but, you know, lighthearted rom-com. The movie is literally about these seven brothers who convince, like, after kind of kidnapping them, to marry, like, kidnapping these seven women to marry the seven brothers. It's kind of wild. I haven't seen it in a long time, so I'm trying to remember the exact plot, but that's essentially what happens. They essentially kidnap these women and then get married to them. It's fucked up. But, as you can probably guess by the name, bride kidnapping is the act of a man either by himself or with the help from relatives or friends, kidnapping a woman with the sole act of marrying her. This is not an isolated case, meaning Marianne's case is not isolated. Bride kidnapping has happened for centuries all over the world. Most of the time, the woman is unwilling and usually underage, 
which is why she was kidnapped because her parents would not let her marry until she was of age, whatever of age meant at that time period. This, of course, leads to sex crimes, which is why bride kidnapping is illegal nowadays in most places. But back in the 1700s, it was common. Now, this bride kidnapping is different from elopement, where both parties consent and run away together. This is a one-sided non-consentment to being kidnapped. Why would anybody want to be kidnapped? There's some really great movies and musicals and TV shows and such about kidnapping. But in real life, it's a no-go. You need to ask consent before you go run away with somebody. There's also a term called raptio. Uh, It's also different from that because it refers to a group of men kidnapping many women, usually during war times. So bride kidnapping is kidnapping one woman to marry her. That is the sole goal. Now, she's unwilling, so anything that happens to her during this kidnapping is also against the law. But that is what bride kidnapping is, to marry her. Raptio, on the other hand, uh, I'm going to reference Shrek again, so my apologies. Actually, I'm not. Sorry, Shrek is amazing. Remember the merry men in the first movie with Robin Hood who swoop in to, quote, kidnap Fiona, but then she kicks their asses and they don't kidnap her? It's something like that. Like in Shrek, these men swoop in and they're like, oh, mesh, uh, (laughs) I was going to try an accent and just massive fail. I'm so bad at it. So bad at it. Okay. Um, No, they like swoop in and they're like, oh, we're going to save you from this beast. We're going to rescue you and take you with us. That's terrifying when one man comes out of the woods out of nowhere and is like, I'm going to take you with me, let alone eight. Terrifying. Men, stop scaring women like that. That's crazy. That's wild. Don't come out of the woods and start talking to women. Leave them alone. But yes, that is bride kidnapping. That is raptio. That is, you know, it's not cool. Don't do it. Men leave women alone. Essentially is what I'm getting at. I will deep dive into this more. I think bride kidnapping is fascinating and I think it's wild that it was common. I think it's wild that men thinks it's okay to marry underage children. Children. Okay, I'm done. Okay, back to the story. So to understand why Mary died, we have to, and not by, we know how she died. You know, she was shot. 
but we need to understand why Mary died. We have to understand the man who shot her, a man by the name John McNaughton. John was born in 1722 to a wealthy Anglo-Irish family. His father was a merchant and magistrate, but when John was six years old, his father died. John inherited his father's money because, you know, those times women didn't get anything. The six-year-old was given all of his father's money. Anyway, John had a lovely childhood because he had tons of money and he attended the best schools and lived a lavish lifestyle. He eventually attended Trinity College in Dublin, but while there, he grew an addiction to gambling and left college to pursue gambling. Of course, his gambling addiction got him into trouble and he was forced to sell off parts of his estate. Honestly, the only good gambling I've ever seen is like when you count cards, which I don't think is illegal. It's just really frowned upon. But I say, if you're really that smart, do it. Just don't get caught. The rest of gambling is an addiction and it is an illness and it's really scary. Okay. He had to sell off parts of his estate so he could pay off his debts. And he was in a huge financial pit after, you know, being decently wealthy. Luckily, though, John met a woman named Sophie Daniel who came from money. So this just, you know, if you want to get anywhere in life, marry rich. John and Sophie fell in love. And when they married, John inherited a healthy dowry from Sophie's father. This is something else that fascinates me. We don't really have dowries here in the United States, but other parts of the world still practice the act of wife, of a wife bringing some family wealth to her marriage. I don't really understand it because I am so far removed from that tradition. I guess the closest here is that women's families are expected to pay for the wedding or they were expected to pay for the wedding a while ago. I don't know how common that is now, but yeah, like dowries are interesting. I don't, I don't get it. But Sophie's dowry was enough to pull John out of his gambling debt. So she had money, honey. He promised Sophie that he would quit gambling. But the moment they moved to Dublin, he broke his promise. By 1756, John acquired so much debt, there was a warrant for his arrest. Not long after the warrant was issued, Sophie died from childbirth. Again, so easy to die back then. I feel, I feel for Sophie. She tried to give her husband everything and he said, fuck you, and then she died. So no one knows for sure what caused the complication of childbirth. I'm sure 
Stress is a huge factor here. John was in such a low state, he contemplated suicide, but Sophie's brother-in-law stepped in and used his influence as the first Earl of Masserine to appoint John as the tax collector for Coleraine, a town in Northern Ireland. He made 200 pounds a year in this position, which is about 35,000 pounds today, but that was not enough for John's addiction. So he began to steal the taxes. Surprise, surprise. He was found guilty of embezzlement. Honestly, that is more of a surprise than him actually stealing the money. Him being found guilty of stealing the money is more shocking. And after he was found guilty, he left his friends to pay the deficit. So what a great friend to have. You know, one that leaves you with a bunch of debt. We know that gambling can be just as bad as alcoholism or any other addiction. It takes a village to pull someone out of the depths of debt that someone may accrue. So lifelong friend of John, Andrew Knox, took pity on John and brought him to his state in Derry so he could live and make sure John didn't get into any more trouble. John was described as good-looking and exceedingly charming. Andrew's 15-year-old daughter, Mary, felt the same way about John, even though he was twice her age. Twice her age. Actually, he was probably like 33 to 35 years old at this point, so more than twice her age. Now, obviously, the thinking these days is very different. This was over 250 years ago. So I get it. But do I believe that Mary found John attractive? It's possible, but also her finding him attractive could have been the family telling her that he's attractive and that he would be a good husband one day. Because that was also common back then, you know, arranged marriages to help the families out. You kind of got married for your families, not really because you loved them. So I'm still torn. I, you know, 33, 35 years old. Sure, maybe John was hot. Sure. Do I think a 15-year-old is really worried about that? No. But do I think if her parents are like, girl, you're almost 18, you got to start thinking about getting married. There's a hot 33-year-old over there, you know? Think about it. I could see that in the 1700s. But either way, John did ask Andrew for permission to marry his daughter, Mary. But because of his gambling addiction, Andrew denied John's request. 
because of his gambling addiction. 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 Not because she's 15 years old. Because he has a gambling addiction. It's rough out there, you guys. Even though Andrew said, hell no, John and Marianne began to see each other behind Andrew's back. Because that's a very teenage thing to do. So that's not surprising at all. Marianne was tricked by John into thinking her father gave consent. So that's a little surprising. Mary thought her dad said, sure, you can ask her out. What's surprising is that she said yes, and that she never talked to her dad about it, and that they just kind of went on dates and fooled around behind his back. That seems weird to me. Not long after they started, quote-unquote, seeing each other, Marianne and John got married, got married, got married outside Preham Estate in Derry, Northern Ireland. And this is why the legal age of marriage is not 15. This 35-year-old man duped this teenager into getting married so he could inherit more money for his gambling debt. It's wild. Andrew, not knowing of the marriage, at like, you gotta be blind or something, sir, because how are you missing them canoodling? How are you missing a marriage? How are you missing all of this? Because he did not know that they were dating or married, he allowed his daughter to take a trip with John, but while they were away, I'm assuming on a honeymoon, Andrew was informed of the marriage. Andrew was furious with John and sent for Marianne, and she was brought back to Derry, and John was told to never come back to Prahan House again. I love the idea of, like, your dad not coming to get you. He just sends people to come and get you. Send the cavalry to go grab my daughter. And of course, John did not take this well and began to stalk Marianne. Again, um, this is like the theme of the episode. Men, leave women alone. How about that? Andrew was terrified of what John may do, that he took the matter to the court and had the marriage voided. And Andrew was awarded damages of 500 pounds for John and Marianne getting married behind his back. The court gave Andrew 500 pounds. It's, I don't, times back then were wild. Okay. John, not having 500 pounds, fled to England to escape the fines. There, he acquired more debt from gambling. Shocker. So he returned to Ireland, but in a disguise. So again, he didn't have to pay his fines. And so he could stalk Marianne easily. 
In this disguise, he heard Marianne was in County Caven, so he made his way. But he was arrested for hiding gunpowder and being mistaken as a robber. So I can only imagine what disguise he had on. John told his story, like after he was arrested, he told his story of not being able to see the love of his life and wife, Marianne, and that he was so heartbroken because her father wouldn't let him see the love of his life. It's like, sir, your marriage no longer exists. Move on. But because of this tale and because of his outpour of love and heartbrokenness, he got support from the town and the people in jail and he became like a local celebrity. This support is what led to his attempted kidnapping of Marianne, but instead murder. So before we get into that, let's take a quick break here and I will be back with some ghosts. Okay, we're back. John McNaughton, I never said it, but McNaughton is a great last name. John McNaughton, he awaited trial in Lifford Jail because Strawbane wasn't secure enough. I don't know what that means. I'm picturing a jail cell made of wood and that he could have karate chopped his way out because I really don't know what secure a non-secure jail is but i guess over the water there's a much more secure jail i don't know today public opinion is very strong when it comes to a murder trial that's why they sequester jurors judges can pick and choose if the trial can be recorded They want as little bias as possible because we don't want to convict someone as guilty if they truly aren't. Something similar happened for John's case. While he waited in jail, locals heard of his story and began to back John. So he was continually gaining supporters. The news of his romantic tragedy caught the hearts of everyone And they all wanted him to go free. And this is why having a good lawyer and a PR team is essential. You can always spin a motherfucking story. He literally murdered the woman, the woman he supposedly loved. His, one of his best friend's daughters. Because he couldn't be with her because he couldn't marry her. He was going to murder people and everyone's like, oh yeah, we support him. We support the murder. We support his actions. Yes. Crazy. 
He eventually, John was eventually tried, and on December 7th, 1761, a month after he shot Marianne, the 39-year-old was found guilty of murdering Marianne Knox, and John McNaughton was sentenced to hang. Because John was so loved in town, no one would build the scaffolding where John was to be hanged. It forced Andrew and his family to build the gallows themselves, and they had to bring in an executioner from another town because the one in Strabane and Lifford wouldn't do it. You got one job, sir, and it's to murder people, and you're refusing to do that. On December 15th, John was led to the gallows to be hanged. Over 1,000 people attended, most of whom supported John. So they waved white handkerchiefs in the air. But there were definitely people who supported the hanging. Let's be clear. Even though majority were against the hanging, there were people who supported the hanging. So the noose was wrapped around John's neck and the trap door opened. John McNaughton fell, but as the rope became taut, it snapped and John fell to his knees. The crowd yelled for John's release while others tried to get John to escape. But John got up and climbed back up the ladder and shouted, quote, I will not live to be known as half-hanged McNaughton, unquote. They tried it again and they hanged him a second time. After John died, he was buried behind Strabane Church. Now, I have talked about this on a previous episode, but you, in certain places, in certain times in history, if you're hanged and you survive you are not hanged a second time. It's It was a law in some places, like, you could not be hanged twice. Kind of like in the United States, where you can't be tried for the same case twice. Like, if you're found not guilty the first time, they can't bring charges against you a second time. Similar to that, if you're hanged once, and you survive, you're not going to be hanged a second time for that crime. But John had other ideas. He did not want to be known as, or like made fun of for almost being hanged, I guess, for being half hanged, kind of like nearly headless Nick. John was like, I don't want to be known as nearly hanged John. Nearly hanged McNaughton. But yes, John died. He was buried. So when it comes to the hauntings, we are headed to Prehen House, just outside Derry, where Andrew Knox lived with his daughter, Marianne. The earliest record of the house dates back to 16. 16- 40, originally owned by the Elvin and Tompkins families. The Knox family took over the house in 1738, and there are some 
fun stories within the family, but we are here to talk about ghosts. Ghosts. Oh my god, y'all. In less than a week, it'll officially be autumn. It'll be officially be spooky season and cool and I can go back to wearing jackets and denim and just feel refreshed. But let's get into some ghosts. Ghosts. The current owner of Praying House is Colin Peck. And from what I can tell from their website, he uses the house for tours and parties. And there's a tea room. I would love to go to high tea and have finger sandwiches or tea cakes or tea sandwich, whatever they're called. Sorry to all you Brits out there. Um, I, I want to go. It looks lovely. It looks tasty. Have some tea. Someone take me. Okay. One night there was a lavish dinner party at Prehan House. Think Gatsby-esque. The party is getting late and a friend of the family, Lane Later, decides it's time to call it a night. She was staying in one of the guest rooms on the top floor of the house. She had a great evening but was so exhausted she collapsed in her bed. She was half asleep when she felt movement in her room. She quickly opened her eyes but decided to lay still and listen carefully. Suddenly, there was a tug at her blanket. She asked if anyone was there, but no one responded. A cold wind blew over her legs. She felt the covers of the bed rise up behind her on the opposite side of the bed, and she felt someone climb in bed with her. Now, now, I'm never collapsing in bed in my clothing. It'll just never happen. If I'm in day clothes and I'm falling asleep, it's because I passed out on the couch, but not in bed. Secondly, if I felt like someone was in the room with me, I would not Well, that's not true. I feel like I've done this before where like, if I felt something in the room or if I felt uneasy about something, I would pretend I was asleep and just kind of like ignore the problem, hoping that it would go away. So I guess I'm not against laying on this one. She stayed curled up on the side of her bed and kind of just hoped that it was nothing. But... The moment you feel a tug on a blanket, that's it. I'm out of the bed. I'm looking to see who it is. I'm not just going to accept my fate. Like we've all heard of fight or flee as like an internal reaction, but there's also freeze and fawn. And in this moment, she completely froze. So again, I don't get it. I I don't blame her for it. But 
She didn't know what to do. She was terrified. She's shaking while she can feel someone wrap their arms around her body and big spoon her. Again, you can't do that without consent, A. B, if I'm feeling physical touch, my ass is out of that bed. Out. My elbow is going thrusting back into the person's face and I am sprinting out of that bed. That is too much. Too much. And now, obviously, I said I'm talking about ghosts, so we know where this is going, but that is too much. She does not know it's a ghost at this point. She just thinks someone is in bed with her and they're wrapping their arms around her and spooning her. In this moment, Lane decided that it was now or never. She left from the she leapt from the bed and threw her back against the wall. In the dark, she was trying to make out who had climbed in bed with her, but the bed was completely empty. The sheets were flat. There wasn't anyone under the bed. This got her so scared, she ran to the door, but the bedroom door was still locked. She took a bit to regain her composure and went back to the bed to sleep. You would not catch me getting back in that bed that night. Or you can catch me on the couch or in the tub or on the floor in some other room, but you will not catch me back in that bedroom. That is wild. I'm not sleeping in that bed. Lane, congratulations. You faced your fear and I'm proud of you for doing it. She did not get a lot of sleep, but she still laid in that bed. Good for you, girl. I would not. The following morning, Lane makes her way to the kitchen for breakfast. When she runs into the host, Colin, he asked her if she was feeling all right. And she explained her entire night to him. However, he wasn't surprised at all. In fact, he nodded as if he had heard the story before. When she was finished, uh, he told her that she was visited by the ghost of half-hanged McNaughton. Every person who sleeps in the ghost room feels the exact same phenomena. They are about to go to sleep, or they are asleep, and they feel, or they awaken to, someone getting into their bed. The bedroom isn't the only bed in the house that this happens to, but it's the bed that it occurs more frequently. Now the house is over 300 years old. It's been a hotspot for paranormal investigators, as you can imagine. And they come from all over the world to come and investigate the praying house. One team brought along a well-known median named Marlon Goodfellow, or sorry, Marion Goodfellow. It didn't take long for Marion to feel the presence of Marianne Knox. The same room that Marianne would eventually die from the gunshot wound. Marion felt her presence in that room. Later that night, 
One of the investigators witnessed what appeared to be an older man walking with his head down move from one room to the next upstairs. People thinking it was Andrew. Marion also begins to pick up that man's energy and feelings, and she does believe it was Andrew Knox as well. Marion's father, who was filled with grief after the death of his daughter. They show some audio on the episode, but I personally have a hard time believing in that kind of evidence. But I believe that the house is haunted. I do think think it's challenging to have a building that's around for 300 years and not have some spirits roaming about. So they might not have anything to do with Mary Ann or John or Andrew Knox, but I would not be surprised if that building is haunted, stays haunted, continues to be haunted in the future. So yeah, if you want to you know, bump into a ghost, check out Pray House. Uh, you might run into Andrew Knox or you might turn in or you might run into John McDonton and have him wrap his arms around your little body. Or who knows, maybe you'll run into Marianne. We don't know. But take a trip. Let me know what you find. And until then, thank you all so much for joining me. Y'all can follow Haunted Hometowns on social media for photos related to each episode, guest info, and upcoming news. Send me your own personal experiences, paranormal experiences. Could be anything from getting lost in the woods and having tea with Bigfoot to an invisible hand consistently smacking your ass to watch it jiggle. Let me know. And yeah, meet me back here in two weeks for another true crime paranormal case because everyone loves a ghost story. The music is by Tyre. Follow him on social media at Queer Pop Star. And the artwork is by Pepe Munoz. Follow him on social media at p.e.p.e.munoz, M-U-N-O-Z. I got my information from Northern Ireland's Greatest Haunts, Wikipedia, PrayHenHouse.com, and Dairy Journal. <laughs>